Great. Well, thanks that uh, you've made it this morning. It's a nice, intimate gathering, and uh, which is good because I wanted to do something a bit interactive. You know how I sometimes like to know what, what you think, and I'll be definitely asking what you think uh, of this uh, most controversial passage in Ephesians. And let me just read the whole thing to you. It's known as the household code because it, it provides guidance for the, for the governing of the whole household, um, marriages, uh, parenting, and slaves. Uh, so let's have a look. It really kicks off at verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might be, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, so I'm just going to give you um, a couple of options about how we approach the text. And then I'm going to give you four observations I've made and then some, uh, uh, some sort of conclusions. But also I'm, I'm going to finish with giving you a few options to choose from as to what we then do with this, uh, with this passage. So it's a bit like that passage we looked at when we looked at women in leadership. There are two different ways of looking at, at this. Either you start with a big overriding principle and decide, right, that principle is the thing that, that governs everything. And every peculiar passage, no matter how difficult it is, we need to find a way to make it fit. So for instance, Galatians 3 verse 28 uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
uh, we, and I agree with the principle in this case, actually, that we take that as a really, really important overriding principle. So that if we find something in one of the letters that seems a bit chauvinist or seems a bit inconsistent with that, well, the priority is, is, is that, because you know, Paul gives us that right at the early stages of his ministry, in the first flush of idealism, before he's encountered all the particular difficulties, he, he's convinced he's seen it. He's, he's seen this incredible truth that we're all one in Christ, that there aren't degrees of union with Christ. So it can't be one for, it can't be more for Jews than for Gentiles, more for free people than for slaves, more for men than for women. It's got to be the same for all, if we're all equally joined to him. And so he uses that as his principle. So whatever he says in a particular case, we have to think, well, whatever it's saying, it's got to fit that. Or you look at things from the other viewpoint and start with the passage and say, well, Paul means what he says. We can't say that he doesn't mean what he says. We can't make a particular passage mean what it doesn't mean. He's saying, wives, submit to your husbands. So, you know, the language is very plain. You can do what you like with the Greek. It's still saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to bring an approach that is kind of mainly that first approach, but also um, tries to take seriously what it actually, actually says. Okay. All right, so first thing to notice, the first observation, is that um, mutual submission sets the scene, doesn't it, for the whole passage, submitting to one another. Um, that, and indeed, it ends on that, on that note as well, because he says even to masters, um, you should do the same to your slaves. In other words, you should serve your slaves. If, you're, if you want your slaves to show reverence and respect and, and serve you, you should do the same to them. So you've got the whole passage is bookended, as it were, with mutual submission. The, the rules have completely changed because of Christ. So with, this, with that mutual submission lens on then, we would say that even for, for husbands to... We would say that even for husbands, there is an element of submission, isn't there? Because if husbands are supposed to love their wives just as self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church, then that involves possibly even laying your career down for your wife and family. If we, if we, if we take our bearings from Christ, you know, the descriptions are quite clear. He, he, he submitted to the mistreatment of the cross. He, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There was a submissiveness about the fact that he was obedient unto death. So actually there, there was, there's a kind of implied, or strongly implied, submitting to one another about self-sacrificial uh, love. And as I say, when in, in chapter 6, verse 9, it talks about masters do the same to them. Paul is probably thinking about things that Christ himself said, such as uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. But then you do come across uh, slight obstacles to this. If we think mutual submission is the way to interpret the whole passage, what about parents and children? Uh, yeah, those who have two and three-year-olds will probably be quite used to the fact that actually we, we obey our children, uh, otherwise we'll be in for uh, a bit of a rough ride, won't we, in, in a public place and they want something, uh, they have their way of um, 
getting it. And teenagers, likewise, sometimes I, I feel like the daddy taxi service and uh, basically, you know, can you, can you pick me up at 11? Uh, sure, yeah, I'd rather be in bed right then. But uh, yeah, okay, I'll come and pick you up at 11. Oh, and can you drop off my friends along, along the way? And uh, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, so it, it really is that parents uh, obey your children in some cases, but I, I think um, we would rather not look at it in that way. And then um, uh, chapter 5, 24, the comparison is made, of course, between Christ and the church. We would never say that the church is in charge of Christ. We would always say that Christ is in charge of the church. And the fact that he draws that analogy makes it really tricky, doesn't it? Because that's not mutual. You know, there's one person in charge of the church, and that's Christ. The church doesn't tell Christ what to do. So that's a bit tricky. That's a bit of an obstacle. But anyway, I think that it, it generally holds good, doesn't it? Overall, mutual submission is a, is a great lens to look at this through, isn't it? it, it it's a great... It's a great way to look at it through. A second observation is that the head of the house here is being addressed in a very unusual way. Uh, let, me, let, me just, um, let me just point out, first of all, that it is the same guy. Um, the husband, the father, the slave owner, it's all the same guy. It's, he's addressing the head of the house. The, the Romans had a term for it, which was the paterfamilias, the father of the house. He was the one in charge of his wife, his children, and his slaves. And whatever he said goes. And in other household codes, that is very clear. Now, the most famous of them is Aristotle's household code. I normally love the Greek philosophers, but I think he's really let himself down here. But just for your amusement, uh, I'll read it out to you. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior and the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle is of necessity extends to all mankind. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the, ruler, one is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal. Quite like that idea. Over his wife, uh, a constitutional role. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. When one rules and the other is ruled, we endeavor to create a difference of outward forms and names and titles of respect. The relation of the male to the female is of this kind. But there, the inequality is permanent. The rule of a father over his children is royal, for he receives both love and respect due to age, exercising a kind of royal power. The free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which he rules over the female, for the man or, or the man over the child. Although the parts of the soul are present in all of them, they are present in different degrees, for the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has but it is without authority. And the child has, but it is immature. So it must necessarily be the moral, uh, of the moral virtues also. All may be supposed to partake of them, but only in such manner and, and, and degree as is required by each for the fulfillment of his duty. Clearly then, moral virtue belongs to all of them, but the temperance of a man and a woman are not, as Socrates maintained, the same. The courage of a man is shown in commanding, 
of a woman in obeying. All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes, as the poet says of women, silence is a woman's glory. Uh, <laughs> but this is not equally the glory of man. The child is imperfect, and therefore, obviously, his virtue is not relative to himself alone, etc., etc. Most of it doesn't make much sense to me anyway, but I thought I'd dip into it. Okay. So it, it, it kind of highlights how, how different uh, is Paul's household code. It differs in a number of crucial ways. The first way, and the most striking of all, is that Paul addresses directly the socially inferior member of each relationship pair. He addresses the wife directly, addresses the child directly, and addresses the slave directly. Incidentally, this is probably the only instance in ancient literature where children are directly addressed by an author. Paul actually wants to talk to the children and say, well, there's this incentive. It says in the fifth commandment that if you honor your parents, you will live long and it will be well with you. He's trying to appeal to their better nature. He's trying to give them the reason why they should obey. None of the other household codes would do that. So, the socially inferior member of each relationship pair is addressed directly, uh, and they are addressed first. He starts with the underdog, as it were. He starts with the wife, the child, the slave in the household. And they are given agency. Like I said, the, the, the children are empowered and given incentives, but also the, the wife is, is asked to. She's not expected to. In the other household codes, it's an expectation because she's inferior. But of course, she has to do what she's told. But here he's saying, even though I think you are actually equal, as an honor to Christ and as you would to Christ, I'm asking that you, I'm asking that you submit. I'm asking that you show respect. Um, so he's giving each of the normally disempowered members of the house um, agency, the power to obey. And presumably the power to not obey. There's the freedom, presumably, to not obey if, if each of those socially inferior members feel they're being in some way abused. And the head of the house has his power limited by the mere fact, in fact, that the apostle is ad addressing those under him directly. It's kind of like, how dare you? I own these people. They're my property. How dare you tell them what to do. They're my property. So he's limiting the power of the paterfamilias, the head of the family, the head of the house, by addressing the members of his house uh, directly, and by also asking the head of the house to show love and care. You notice in Aristotle's code, and it was the same with all the others, there's no expectation that the head of the house would show any love or care towards anyone. He could treat them how he wished. He could even decide who lived and who died. If his wife had a baby, he could decide whether it's exposed or whether it's kept um, normally. Uh, yeah. So there we are. And if the slave disobeyed, he could just have them crucified, which was quite common. The third observation. So the first observation, mutual submission sets the tone. Second observation, the head of the house is addressed in a highly unusual way. This is clearly quite quietly revolutionary, which leads to this, the third observation. Paul advises quiet subversion 
of the social norms, not an all-out revolution. This is the thing we might struggle with slightly. He seems to want us to keep the norms of our culture in place. He wants churches to look normal, in other words. He wants us to be normal-looking, um, even though actually we've done something quite quite revolutionary with the structure. So, for instance, the most striking one um, is slavery. As you saw from that video, it wasn't until the late 18th, early 19th century that we had this abolition campaign. Paul nowhere goes as far as advocating the abolition of slavery. He keeps it in place. He keeps it in place. He keeps the, the structure in place, but tries to renew the structure from within. Now, it's clear from Galatians 3.28 that he did, not, he, he did not see slaves as subhuman. Uh, he, he thought, how can they be? If, 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 they've, if they're in Christ, just as a master is in Christ, then how can there be any uh, inferiority? But to not have slaves, of course, would have been impractical and quite possibly unimaginable. In the ancient world, if you weren't a slave owner, you were in fact a slave. About a third of the population were slaves. They didn't have vacuum cleaners. They didn't have washing machines. Uh, there was no other conceivable way of running a home than to use slaves. Whereas today, of course, it's unconceivable that we would have slaves. It's, it's equally unimaginable to us that we would have any. In fact, I think the very first time I ever encountered it directly was when I went out to Nigeria back in uh, 2017. I was staying in the house of a wealthy lawyer uh, who was clearly a man of some means. He lived in a, a sort of a gated suburb, and he had this lovely palatial home. And, um, and yeah, they owned a slave, a slave girl. She was just down the corridor from the kitchen. And... Um, yeah, they just kept shouting her whenever they wanted anything. They just shouted her name, and she would slowly arrive, looking fairly miserable. Uh, it felt really uncomfortable for me, but um, yeah. They were Christ a Christian home, but they weren't... I wouldn't have said they were particularly putting into practice Paul's advice here. They weren't treating her particularly kindly, although neither were they especially unkind. But it was quite a shock for me to, to see that. But what Paul does seem to want to do is he does want to bring Christ into the center of each of these relationships so that the, the, the wife's interaction with the husband is as unto the Lord uh, and the, the husband sees himself, sees his role as modeled by Christ and the church. And even the children are to be brought up in the admonition of the Lord. They're not any longer seen as the parents' property. They belong to the Lord, and it's the admonition of the Lord that is the focus. And Christ, of course, is the master in heaven over the master on earth. So Christ, again, is right at the center. So the result, then, that I think Paul wanted to produce was a normal-looking community of people whose lives are attractive to outsiders because infused with the beauty of Christ. Our neighbor has a notice on their front door saying, remember, as far as anyone else is concerned, we are a nice, normal family. And I think that's a, that's a good rule of thumb. Actually, we've done something pretty weird by having Christ at the center of our lives, but I think if Paul was here today, he'd want our family life to look just like any other family. The norms were what they were then. We have different norms now. And so we need to 
look pretty much like those norms uh, without being particularly different unless it really does contradict our faith. So, and then the last observation, fourth observation, Paul says nothing about kitchens, household chores, or the woman's place being in the home. In fact, a plain reading of the text would actually require uh, fathers, for example, to be willing to be the main caregiver. Uh, he talks about uh, bringing up children, nourishing them, and, 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 and being the, the main person who nourishes the child, potentially. Uh, so that's, that's fairly revolutionary. And he talks about the, 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 the husband being willing to be self-sacrificial so that he might actually be willing to lay down his whole career for a time in order to look after children and give his life uh, to the family. And I'm a firm believer in interchangeable roles. Pearl is away in Inverness right now. And I have to say, I'm not floundering. I, I know my way around the kitchen. I do most of the cooking. I, uh, I'm no stranger to the vacuum cleaner. And I'll doubtless be ironing the uniforms later on today. And that's fine. You know, it's a seamless transition. Whenever she goes away or whenever I go away, things carry on exactly. You know, we, we've, we, we've got things actually down to a T, I think. We're, we're pretty much interchangeable in terms of our household uh, chores. And I, and I think that's, that's right. There's no, there's no basis in this passage for going back to the 1950s. That's definitely not what he's teaching. So... My preliminary conclusions then, and I'll read this out in full because I want to get it right. Whatever Paul is teaching us here, we can be sure that his intention was to empower the socially inferior members of, the, of a first century household and to bring the beauty of Christ into the center of every home. Given this fact, it would almost certainly go against his intentions for us to use this passage today in a way that disempowers anyone, for example, women. Given Paul's advice that we quietly subvert rather than overturn social norms, he would probably want us to work within what is considered normal in our culture today. For the majority of UK families, there is no longer a strong expectation that the man is automatically the head of the house. Teamwork rather than headship and submission seems to be the model that is aimed at today. And we can happily work with the idea of marriage and family life as a team effort. Whatever we do with the passage, it can't be a pretext for reverting to an outmoded 1950s view of women in the home, since Paul is not here urging the Ephesians to go back to an earlier model, but to work at renewing the existing contemporary model. Problem. Even given all the caveats that we now have in place about mutual submission... Paul's intention to empower, the self-sacrificial Christ-centeredness of the husband, and the absence of any directions about specific domestic roles, even despite all that, it seems hard to get around the very direct request that wives be subject to their husbands, just as hard, perhaps, as trying to get around the expectation that children obey parents and slaves obey masters. So, here's the options. And it's at this point that I covet your, um, your opinions. I've, I've come up with um, three options and plus a fourth, which is none of the above. So you can choose none of the above if you want. Uh, option A, uh, thinking in particular of wives and husbands, balance it out 
by saying that a truly self-sacrificial husband is also in his own way submitting to his wife. He is giving away power. He is self-emptying and self-donating for the life of his family, just like Christ. So his role also is about submission. Bearing in mind that the Greek word for submission, can there's some flexibility around how you interpret it. It's hupotacitai, hupotacitai, which simply means to arrange yourself under. It was normally used in a military context, so it would have this idea of command and obedience, but nonetheless, the, the, the basic meaning of it is that we arrange ourselves around one another. We arrange ourselves beneath one another. We accommodate one another. We go out of our way to shape ourselves around one another's needs. Hupotacitai. We submit to one another. Option B, and it could be both option A and B, I think, reimagine the language for today so that headship and submission could be seen as initiation and response, which I think has more resonance today. If you think of dating, proposing, dancing, all of these, even today, even with our modern values, it's still expected, isn't it, that the guy picks up the phone when he wants to ask a girl out. It's still expected that the guy produces the engagement ring and, and proposes. In modern dance, it's still expected that the guy is the leader. So I wonder, if, I wonder if there are many women actually in marriages today who actually are longing for their husbands to show more initiative. I'm not going to look anywhere. Longing for their husbands to show more initiative and, and, and not be so passive. You know, there's nothing more irritating to a wife is there than a passive husband who's lost lost his ability, he might have been really bold and, and exciting at the start when they were first going out, but he's lost that and now he's just a passive couch potato or something. Um, and, and, and likewise, I think there might be many men in marriages who are frustrated that they're always being told what to do and there's no space anymore for them to decide for themselves what needs doing and in what order. They want to be given the freedom to initiate. They want to be given back that power to be proactive in family life rather than reactive. So there we are. Uh, and I think the way to encourage that, I think guys, guys really like applause, don't they? When they do take an initiative, they love it when, you, when women are highly responsive. Uh, Pearl is good at this, actually. Only yesterday I texted her about a difficult decision that, and, uh, and, and how I'd ma made a decision about it and, and the, the way I'd arrived at it. And she, she rang me up from Inverness and she was so thrilled with how I'd done that. She, she, she really sort of piled on the applause and the praise and she's very good at that. So uh, there's a little tip for you uh, wives. If you want your husbands to show more initiative, then show more uh, responsiveness and praise. Okay, so that's option B. Option C, ignore Paul's teaching about submission altogether. Leave it in the first century. It's just not for today. That's option C. Option D, none of the above. Okay, so you've got option A. Uh, I think option A and B are probably about the same. Option A, balance out the submission requirement by saying, well, can't we also say that the, the husband loving the wife is a kind of submission as well? Update the terminology of headship and submission so that it's more like initiation and response. Uh, C, leave it in the first century. D, none of the above. Come up with something different. So, uh, over to you. 
Uh, I'll, whatever you say, I'll try and repeat it so that it gets onto YouTube and doesn't get missed. Because uh, I know how wise you all are and how good your contributions will be. Just stick your hand up if you want to make a contribution. If you've got any observations, any... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know. I know, yeah. I know, yeah, that's exactly right. So just for the for the recording, yeah. But why why do modern Bibles start the, the heading at verse 22 uh, about wives submit to your husbands and actually it really ought to start in verse 21 submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ but most commentators agree that maybe it belongs in neither section because it's both it's a hinge verse it's responding it's it's the end of what it means to be filled with the spirit be filled with the spirit speaking to one another singing in psalms and all like that and submitting to one another that's it's the end result of being filled with the spirit but it's also the the thing that kicks off this whole household code it's kind of in between isn't it but yeah you're right i think um the way it does set the tone for this is 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 vital yeah Colin. Yes. 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 So, just for the recording, I'll try and capture that. Um, what the what the message doesn't say is husbands rule over your wives. There's no sense in which the husband's wishes are being in, imposed on the wife. Um, and um, yeah, you made the comparison to Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities, a similar sort of thing. It's not an unconditional obedience that's being requested, is it? Um, so, yeah, did I capture all that? 
I, I kind of got the, the gist of it, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, just, just also to add to that, interestingly, in the Greek, I've got the Greek here, so I can look up anything if you want me to look it up. Um, in the Greek, uh, when it, when it, it, in two places where Paul, where we normally translate to as, as wives submit to your husbands, because he's already used the word submit in the previous verse, he doesn't repeat it. So, he actually, so for instance, submitting to one another in the fear of God, he then says, and wives to your husbands. He doesn't actually use the word submit again. And it, and, and it happens again, as the church is subject to Christ, so wives to the... He, he's, there's almost a reluctance to say wives submit. He, he's saying, well, just as we submit to one another, wives also do that to one to your husband so it's quite interesting uh i think there was a there was a hand up over here wasn't there did i get something out of the corner of my eye maybe it was just my contact lenses yeah Yeah, very well put. Thanks, Sue. Um, yeah, so uh, we can't overstate, can we, the importance of Christ as the, the model, the template here. And it, it's in all these teachings you have in, New, in the New Testament, they've always got the memory of Christ, uh, the, the example of Christ in their minds. And uh, yeah, the whole model that Christ uh, of leadership that Christ showed was, wasn't, uh, in fact, he... he he forbade us to copy the the way the the lords of the Gentiles rule and the way they just sort of uh, are so heavy-handed. So it's not without. It's not a non-participative uh, imposition. It's very much a collaboration, isn't it? Uh, it's not that we don't have any initiative or have any say in in things. Uh, it's very much participation. Um, yeah. There was definitely, this time, there was definitely a hand up over here. I'm sure there was. No? Okay. Uh, over here then. Yeah.
Yes, yes, yes. Yes, Steve reminded us of the uh, washing of the disciples' feet in John 13. And uh, yeah, and, and that's one of those wonderfully revolutionary moments where Jesus shows what it really looks like to be a true leader. It's to tie a towel around your waist. And um, it's such a move. I've only been in one or two foot washing ceremonies in my time, but it's really, really moving, especially when it's someone who is quite high-ranking, doing it to someone uh, who, who doesn't have that rank, I uh, just find it very moving. Mm. Good, well, I think... Yeah, I, I think my translation here, the ESV, tries to clarify that a bit um, uh, by amplifying when Paul says, what I'm describing here is Christ in the church. Um, and I, I think Paul, I, I, the feeling I get is that Paul is so caught up at this point with this, what started out as just an analogy uh, of husband and wife, he gets so caught up with Christ and the church, because the whole letter's about that, you know, the whole letter's about Christ and the church. Uh, and he gets lost in wonder for a bit, and he's talking about Christ and, 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 and the church as the bride of Christ. And then he comes back down to earth uh, and eventually returns to the analogy. So I think there's a sense in which when he's up there talking about uh, the savior of the body and uh, the, wa the washing of water by the word and, and, and with the, the church being without spot or wrinkle, I think we have to sort of, that's kind of husband and wife light, but church, Christ and the church heavy, is the, the emphasis is there, I think, yeah. Yeah, Sue. Yes. 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 Thank you, uh, Sue. Just helpfully added to what we're discussing here about um, uh, the, the saving and sanctifying and washing parts of this passage, uh, and 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 how that could in fact apply to the head of the house, that he's responsible for the spiritual well-being of all the members, uh, and how he embodies that himself. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. 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 That's very interesting. 
Right, yeah. Security, yeah. Yeah. You are making sense, yes, definitely. Thanks, thanks, Jackie, yeah. So just for the recording, yeah, there's the... Um, and I think you, perhaps you speak for a, a number of women as well in, 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 in marriages, that there is a sense if, if the guy, uh, if the, the buck stops with the guy, as it were, and he, he makes the final decision on something, that that's quite, and, and if you can rely on him to do that, then that's actually quite comforting and quite reassuring. And likewise in parent-child relationships, as you were saying, for the child to know there's boundaries, authority is, is comforting for the child. But as you say, submission is a slightly harder word. It's a, it's a harder word than authority. Yeah, that's a good observation. It's good. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're edging towards 25-2 now, so I'm guessing I'm out of time. Uh, should we... Uh, who's leading worship today? Uh, oh, yeah. So... But thanks, everyone. That was uh, that was a lovely time of reflection on what is actually rather a difficult passage. So thank you.